Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, today's Bible reading is very topical for Australians at the moment. At least it should be, especially if we're following current events of what's happening in our country and what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ and how they're being treated in our own country at the moment. Earlier this week, Israel Falal, um, who is recognised as, by many as, as Australia's best rugby union player, was found guilty of committing a high-level breach of the Rugby Australia Professional Code of Conduct. Um, now, a judgment of a high-level breach, that's the highest one, um, well, it can mean that he can lose his job. Um, they can tear up his contract and say you're in breach of contract and um, you can't work for us anymore. And in fact, Rugby Australia e announced even before the tribunal met, um, they announced unconditionally that regardless of what the tribunal decided, they weren't going to let him play rugby for Australia again. In addition to that, some people of authority have made mention of Israel's position as a role model for children and their comments have indicated that we don't think he's a very good role model and we don't want somebody like him saying these sorts of things so that our children might happen to hear them. Why? What has this man done? What conduct has been so heinous um, that he's earned such judgment of his character and of his conduct? Well, I'll tell you what he did. In, in his personal social media, he reposted something that said, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters will go to hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus. Basically, he was quoting what the Bible has to say. And then he added some of his own personal words of, of what the Bible says, uh, those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. That's what he did. So what's all this reaction about? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that if he didn't include the word homosexual there, um, it wouldn't have gotten much airplay and there wouldn't have been much bother about it at all. But he did include that word and so it got lots of media attention. And in fact, the media headlines seemed to be mainly homing in just on just that one particular issue. But what is so offensive? 
Israel dared to warn people about hell and judgment. And I've been, I've been watching this issue pretty closely as it unfolds in the media. And let me tell you, it depends very much on which media source you read or watch or listen to um, as to their, their view and their take on this issue. Um, but it's also, it's been very enlightening to see the different segments of the media, but also very enlightening to read um, the, the comments coming from different readers of the articles, because some, with some papers, people can comment on the articles. And in the paper that I subscribe to, The Australian, most readers' comments are highly supportive of Israel and his right to state his religious beliefs. Um, but even support comes in various forms. Um, so that the most common response it comes along the lines of, well, I don't, don't at all agree with what he says, but I do agree with his right to say it. You see, for, for most people, it becomes an issue of freedom of speech. But then there's some very ugly responses toward him as well. And even some people who claim to be Christian have absolutely caned him for believing in hell and even worse, for daring to preach about hell. And some people have come out against him and said, this is hate speech. Telling anyone that they're going to go to hell, that's hate speech. Some others have made the point that he shouldn't judge others. You see, by, by him warning others of the existence of hell and God's plan of salvation, they feel that Israel has judged them um, and declared them guilty. And they say that he doesn't have that right. Um, they fail to see the difference between warning and judgment. It'd be like driving along the road at 108 kilometres an hour and go past a sign that says 100 kilometres an hour and go, that sign, that's judging me. No, it's not judging me. That's what the police officer's going to do when he gives me a ticket. Um, some have even presented themselves as being theological experts and, and explained how Israel's version of the gospel is not the gospel. Basically, the issue is that our society do not want to be reminded of this place called hell. And we certainly don't want to be told that we're going to be going there. So, as disciples of Jesus, what are we to think of hell. Some people, actually many people claim that to believe in hell isn't the view of Jesus. And they come down really hard on, on any preacher who dares to mention hell and judgment. And some people would brand me today as being always oh, one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. He's probably a climate denier as well. Um, basically, what they want to do is try and put somebody into this box of theirs. Ah, oh, he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And therefore, they can dismiss them, right? They're that kind of person. That's what they believe. It's all a load of, load of crock. We don't need to listen to them. Um, but for, for anyone who's been listening to these messages for quite a while now, well, you should know that what we do here is we preach our way through whole books of the Bible. We don't leave anything out. And that way, we only bring up stuff as often as what God wants to bring it up. And perhaps today, I am a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Why? Because in the passage that we're studying today, Jesus 
is a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Some people claim that, that Jesus would never tell anyone they're going to hell. But the heart, and for those people, very unpalatable reality, is Jesus had more to say about hell than anyone else in the whole Bible. To make the claim that, that Jesus doesn't warn us about the existence of hell, well, that's, that's dishonest. At, at best, it's complete ignorance, and at worst, it's demonic deceit. Jesus has more to say about hell than anyone else in the Bible. What is this place called hell? Up until a couple of years ago, I used to call the local St George rubbish, rubbish dump Gehenna. Uh, there, there were certain locals uh, who, no matter how illegal it was and, and no matter how hard the council tried to stop people from doing it, there was always someone who felt it necessary to light a match and throw it into the dump. And so there was always seemed to be fire there or a smouldering away there that the dump was just smouldering all the time and when you took stuff there you'd have to make sure you pulled up where the wind wasn't going to blow this smouldering smoke through your ute and or if the wind changed and it blew towards town you'd have to get your washing in otherwise it'd, it'd, the whole washing would just smell like the smouldering dump why did i call our local dump gehenna well the real Gehenna was or is a valley south of Jerusalem. It was a place where um, back in Old Testament days, people actually used to sacrifice their own children, human sacrifice, to the false god Moloch. Now, when King Josiah rediscovered the book of the law, and he realised that the people of Israel had really gotten out of hand and they were being unfaithful to God, he instituted a great reformation in that nation. He wanted to, to bring this nation back to God again. And so he did his best to stamp out the worship of false gods. And, and part of this reform was he desecrated this place where people had sacrificed their children to the god Moloch. It was cursed. It was impure. It was unholy. It was a place where it, it wasn't people, they couldn't use it for anything anymore. And so by the time of Jesus, Gehenna had become the rubbish dump for Jerusalem. It was a place where, where Jerusalem would bring all of their rubbish and throw it out. And guess what they'd do? They'd light fire to it. And there was just a smouldering rubbish dump. And that's why I used to call our dump Gehenna. And I'll have to have a word to Alex. Maybe when they take over our dump, I might suggest that they might put the sign up. Gehenna might be a good conversation starter as to what it's about. Um, it, was, it was the dump where the fire never went out. And when the ancients looked for a name to describe this destination of eternal judgment, they could think of no better name than Gehenna a place of wickedness, a vile place, a place where the refuse of the city would be dumped and burned. That's where the word Gehenna comes from, and that's the word that our, that our Bibles translate as hell. 
And Jesus has more to say about Gehenna. He has more to say about hell than any other person in the Bible. So, what are we to make of it? Firstly, Jesus teaches us that hell is a real place. There's a popular book which was published just a few years ago now, um, and it became very popular. Big book called Heaven is for Real. I think it's probably only fiction, um, but it became very popular. Now, most people don't mind hearing that, that heaven is for real. But it's not so comforting to hear that hell is for real. Hell is not some kind of fantasy that's been constructed to try and make little children and simpletons behave themselves. That's what a lot of people believe, want us to believe hell is about. It's not. Hell is a real place. It's a real destination. Is it a place of, of literary, literal smouldering of fire with worms eating your flesh and whatnot? I don't know. We're not told. Just, just as we don't have a full and complete picture of what glory is going to be about and going to be like, and, and a lot of what we're told about glory is, is told to us in, in the form of metaphors, we're not given a complete picture of what this place of torment is going to be like. And a lot of the description of hell is given to us in metaphors. So we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but what we do know is that every metaphor that's used to describe hell all make it very clear that, that hell is a place of punishment and torment. I've heard so many people joke about, oh, hell's going to be the fun place to go because that's where all the fun people are going to be. I actually want to go to hell, they say. But if only they knew... If only they knew. Secondly, it is a place of eternal torment. Uh, you will have heard the phrase, hell's too good for him. No, you don't have to worry about that. It's not going to be too good for anyone. It's a place of eternal, dreadful torment. And none of us want to end up there. You know, even as I prepared for this message today, even in one of the commentaries that I read, the author had the attitude that, that hell isn't a place of eternal fire and torment. And I very quickly concluded that they were just um, hoping for something that the scriptures don't say. I very quickly discarded that commentary because that's not at all what the scriptures very, very clearly say. Here we're taught about how the fire doesn't go out. Um, in Revelation, it draws a very clear image um, where, where it talks about the return of Jesus and, and the judgment that happens of this place of torment. They use the words forever and ever. Now, I, I don't think that leaves a lot of room for argument. Forever seems a long time, but forever and ever, I don't think you can argue with that. Thirdly, there is a day of judgment coming when Jesus returns. And that day is getting closer and closer. Every day that we live is another day closer to when Jesus returns. Now, we don't know exactly when he's going to return. 
People have been seeing it in. They've been saying that it's going. Oh, it's got to come soon. It's got to come soon. And they've been saying this for thousands of years. The point is, we don't know the day that Jesus will return. But I can say now, looking at our society, I don't think there's ever been a time where society has changed so quickly on a global scale and changed for the worst. Um, we don't know when it's going to be, but the day is coming. When those who embrace sin and who reject Jesus will be judged and sentenced to hell. Now, there is no middle ground here. We're either with Christ in glory, his church presented to him as the pure, holy bride of Christ, or without Christ in hell. That's the two options. And yet so many people still hold on to the hope, which is a hopeless hope, Oh, but surely there's got to be a third option because yeah, I'm not bad enough to send to hell. I just don't believe in Jesus. I'm not bad enough to send to hell. There's, there's got to be a third option. But there is only the two options. With Christ in glory or without Christ in hell. How do you feel about that? If this is our starting point, that hell exists, that hell is eternal, and that those who reject Christ are going to go to hell. How do you feel about that? How do, we, how do we respond? What should we do? Are you happy about it? Does it make you want to shout out, hallelujah? Anyone? What's wrong with us? Are we the saints of God or aren't we? You know, we sing Alleluia a lot in, in a lot of our songs that we sing and sing, don't we? Yep. We want to sing Alleluia? Would it surprise you to know that the word Alleluia, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew praise the Lord, occurs only four times in the whole of the Bible? Would it surprise you to know that? Would it surprise you to know that those four times all happen within the first six verses of Revelation chapter 19? What's happening there? Why are the saints of God and the multitude of heaven shouting out, Hallelujah! It's because God's righteous judgment has finally come. The saints who have been persecuted and killed for their faith, have been crying out to God, how long, O oh God? How long will you let this go on? How long will you let the, those evil people continue to get away with this? How long are they going to be allowed to keep killing us for our faith? How long are they going to keep saying lies about us and, and running us down and and persecuting us. How long, O oh God, until you bring your righteous judgment? And then finally it comes and the saints of God shout out, Hallelujah! But how do we feel about the concept of judgment 
and hell. Do we want to shout out hallelujah or, or are we a little bit ashamed of it? We have the world's utter rejection, their disdain for Christ, their disdain for the notion of judgment, their rejection of the concept of hell, and they have an utter disdain for those who believe it. Does this make us a little bit ashamed? Some people make the point that Jesus gave this message privately to his disciples. They say, there you go. Um, this is just something for the disciples to know about. It's not something for the world to hear. And, and anyone who, who talks about hell to the world, well, they're not doing the right thing. Rubbish. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <gasps> he said it again. That H word. Our society have generally lost the fear of God. Do you agree? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, most people will tell us that, yeah, we just don't fear God anymore because we don't believe in him. That's why we're not afraid of him. Well, let me ask, if, if that's the case, then why are they so desperate to shut Christians up? Why do they hate the word of God being preached so much? If they don't believe in God, if they don't believe in hell, why do they hate so much that somebody might mention it? It's like being scared of the, the monster in the cupboard that's not really there. Why have people lost their fear of God? I believe one reason is we Christians have been ashamed. We're afraid of the world. And so we haven't proclaimed the words of Jesus from the rooftop like he told us to. And here, Jesus is encouraging us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Right? What's the worst that anyone can do to us for believing in Jesus? They can kill our family before our eyes. They can kill us. But that's the worst they can do. And if someone kills a Christian for their faith, that's okay, because they cannot kill a soul. And straight away, the Christian is with the Lord. It says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But even so, how do we feel about it? 
it grieves us, doesn't it? It grieves us to know that so many who reject Christ, even some of our closest loved ones who reject Christ, are on their way to hell. How could it not grieve us? It's like when Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem and as he walked along the ridge and the path along this ridge and he looks down and he sees the city of Jerusalem, he stopped and he wept. Why did he weep for Jerusalem? It's because the way of the peace of God was right there before them, but they failed to see it. And Jesus knew what was going to happen a few years later in AD 70 when God's judgment would come upon Israel in a terrible, terrible, bitter put down of a rebellion. And so the fourth thing we learn is it is godly to grieve the judgment of the wicked. I remember as a kid, now I know some of you are going to find this hard to believe, but sometimes I used to do something naughty when I was a child and dad would have to get the strap out. I know you're going to find that hard to believe, but sometimes I was naughty and dad would get the strap out. And I remember a couple of times he said to me, now, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I go, Oh, I didn't say it. I remember thinking, I don't think so, Dad. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to hurt me more than you. Now, if I was a little bit wittier and a little bit quicker and a little bit cheekier, I probably sort of said, well, I'll tell you what, Dad, give me the strap and I'll give you a flogging and um, that way I'll be punished more because apparently this end hurts more than that end, right? Now, obviously, I didn't do that because then it would have really hurt, really hurt a lot. But you know what? When I became a dad, I actually understood that. It does hurt a loving father to have to punish their child. It does. By the way, if you're a parent and it doesn't hurt you when you give your child a bit of discipline, it's probably, you're probably not the one to be doing it. If you're in a state of mind where it makes you feel better, to give your child a bit of punishment, stop immediately. But this is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. This is why our Heavenly Father sent so many prophets to warn the nation of Israel before he finally allowed Assyria to take the north and Babylon to take the south. And those were terrible, terrible times for Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord Yahweh, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. You know, some people have the picture of God as being like, like a kid with a magnifying glass trying to burn ants with the sunlight. You know, oh, if, I can just, if I can just smite these people, that's not the way God is at all. God doesn't take any pleasure at all in the destruction of the wicked. His desire is that we should all repent and turn to him and receive life. 
but there has to be a day of judgment. There has to be punishment for sins. Why? Because justice demands it. I mean, even in our own law courts, when justice is not delivered and when the punishment seems weak, what do we as a society do? Don't we cry out, where's the justice? And don't we demand for our judges to start to get tough on crime? There has to be a day of judgment. There has to be punishment for sins. Justice demands it. And our God is a God of complete justice, so he cannot ignore the need for justice. But here's the thing. The Lord our God is also a God of mercy. How can that be? How can our Heavenly Father at the same time be a God of both justice and mercy? Sometimes to give proper justice, we don't think there's really room for mercy there. I love the image in Psalm 85, where it gives us the image of how in God, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, and righteousness and peace kiss each other. Our God is righteous, but he also brings peace. In God, righteousness and peace kiss. Don't you love that image? What a tender image. And so our fifth point is, in God's mercy, he bore the punishment himself. That's why Jesus died on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not some kind of picture of somebody who was powerless being stomped upon by the corrupt, powerful rulers. A lot of people would, would tell us that's what happened. That's not at all what happened. There was no person more powerful than Jesus. This is a case of the Lord God Almighty voluntarily paying the penalty that I deserved and voluntarily paying the penalty that you deserved. There is no forgiveness of sins without sacrifice. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But here's the thing, it can't just be any old blood. right? If my blood was shed for sins, there'd be no room for the forgiveness of anybody, not even for the forgiveness of me. Because that would be called justice, not mercy. You see, if I got what I deserved and I died, that doesn't even pay the penalty that I've earned. Because using God's law and Jesus' take on the law, I probably deserve about 150,000 consecutive death sentences for all of the wrongdoings that I've done. How many of those could I pay? Well, only one. I can't even pay for my own sins. I can't even give justice. 
The shedding of my blood doesn't provide forgiveness, only justice. It takes the shedding of the blood of somebody pure and holy, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the pure sacrifice that can provide the forgiveness of sins. You see, the judge himself shed his own blood for us. Sixthly, those who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven. Now, we touched on this briefly last week, and I did say we're going to cover this more so this week, but um, we're actually going to be doing it more next week now. Um, but for today, we need to know that without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, repentance begins with the change of our attitude toward Christ. If we continue to reject Christ, even if we're sorry for our sins, even if we're sorry for our wrongdoing, but if we continue, if we continue to reject Christ, we are rejecting the one who is merciful. We are rejecting the mercy of the one who is able to give it. This is a case of rather trusting in our own foolish pride than actually trusting in the one who loves us and wants to save us. If only we would turn to him and bow before him and worship him to be saved. Repentance begins when we turn our hearts toward Jesus. Because sin is our rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But our rejection of Christ is also demonstrated by the things we do. Right? So repentance of sin is to stop rejecting Christ. But it is also to turn from the wrong things that we do. If I say I love Jesus but I don't keep his commandments. I don't love Jesus at all. I just love myself. It was John, that wonderful apostle who had so much to teach us about love, who said in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's a pretty clear picture, isn't it? That those who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven. The two elements, repentance and belief. So let's come back. I asked earlier, what are we to think of hell? It's a real place of eternal torment. The day of judgment's coming. 
And we know that our loving Heavenly Father doesn't, doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but, but because he is a God of justice, it's got to happen. And the punishment must fit the crime. But because God is a merciful God, he took the punishment himself. And so those who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven and receive eternal life. Now, if God did this at, at enormous personal cost, the death of his own son on the cross. If Jesus died on the cross to save many, what do we do? Our Heavenly Father so loved the world and was so moved with compassion for the world that he gave his only son. Reminds you of John 3.16, doesn't it? That, that most famous verses that most people know. If you know it, Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? Now, most people know that. A few people may also know verse 17, the one that comes after it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hey, that's good news, isn't it? Yay. But I wonder how often we read the next four verses or if anyone knows them off by heart because Jesus' words don't stop there. Jesus is still going. You see, God did something. He gave his own son to, to, to save the world and he did it because he loves the world so much. And Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he, gave, he came to give away to be saved. That's what God did. What do we have to do? Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The good news is whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is not condemned. Good news? Yay? Woohoo! Right. But the good news is only good news because without it, there is some really bad news. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why is that so unknown? Why is it such a shock to so many? Coming from Romans chapter 10, Paul gives us a bit of an, an analysis. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how they call on him if, if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe in him if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear about him unless somebody preaches it? And how is somebody going to preach about it unless somebody sends them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Who does God send? Oh, he sends the minister, of course. No, he doesn't. Well, actually, he does, but not just the minister. He sends us. God sends me. He sends you. He sends Israel Falao. And it says there, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings this good news. Izzy's feet are beautiful even without ASIC's shoes on them. Now, if you don't get that, ASIC's withdrew their sponsorship. So they, they said, we're not going to sponsor you anymore. Does it grieve you that those who don't repent of sin and give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ are on their way to hell? Does that grieve you? I hope it does. Because if, if this doesn't grieve us, then we don't have a heart like Jesus' heart. But does it grieve us enough? Does it grieve us enough to spur us into action? Does it grieve us enough to dare to do what Israel Falal did? Does it grieve us enough to love the world like God loves the world? Does it grieve us enough so that even though the world will hate us, and even though the world will accuse us of hate speech and even though the world will use its laws and legalities to try and restrain us and to punish us and silence us and paint us as, as hateful sorts of people, do we love people enough to bear with this so that the truth will be told, so that the truth will not be hidden? So that the gospel will be heard. So that some will be saved. And so that the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. Do we love people enough to cop the persecution? Just so that we can give them the message that by which they will be saved. It'd probably, I reckon it would be a fair call that because people like me and dare I say maybe like you because we've been gutless Christians because we've been too ashamed to share the full gospel out into the world when somebody did it publicly there was a level of shock a level of disdain a whole lot of offence and a whole lot of persecution now, Jesus told us to expect this. But will we be witnesses for Christ in spite of it? But also, very important for us today is to begin with the question, am I right with Jesus? 
Let's begin with that question. You know, Jesus said you've got to take the, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. What he's saying is make sure you're right with me before you go telling others that they've got to be right. And don't ever take that as an excuse. You know, some people say, oh, I'm not a perfect Christian, therefore I can't tell people about how to be saved. That's not at all what he's saying. None of, if that was the case, nobody would ever get told because none of us are perfect Christians. Certainly not me. But there is a cost to following Jesus, you see. The light came into the world. But do I love darkness more than I love the light? The prideful self tells me that I'm okay. The prideful self tells me I don't need Jesus. Or maybe my pride might tell me, well, I do need Jesus, but what I do, that's not sin. Or if it is sin, Jesus will just forgive me of it. I don't have to repent of that. Even though God's righteous law condemns it. Am I so full of pride that I would reject God's means of mercy and salvation just so I can continue on in my pride? There's a word for someone like that, you know. Please don't be offended. Well, actually, do. I don't care. Here's the word. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Am I a fool? Am I someone who rejects God's means of mercy? Or am I a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? You'll be a fool in somebody's eyes. Christians are fools in the eyes of the world. But those who reject Christ are fools in the eyes of God. In the end, someone's going to think you're a fool. And God knows who I'd rather it be. So... I had promised that it was going to be this week that, that we're going to talk more about a transformed life of a Christian, but that's actually going to be next week now. We're going to talk more about the transformed life of a Christian as we leave sin behind and we follow the path of righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, give us a heart like your heart that we can shout out, Alleluia, Yahweh be praised, judgment is coming. And yet at the same time to be grieved for those who are on the path to hell. Lord, we praise you that you are a God of justice. That you give righteous judgment. But we also praise you that you are a God of mercy. Lord, we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ, he who was sinless, became sin and died for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for those who have given us this message of good news 
so that we might repent and believe. And Lord, we know that you send us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a holy boldness. Give us a godly courage to be prepared to be hated by the world, to be prepared to be accused of hate speech, to be accused of being judgmental, to be accused of not caring for others. Lord, give us stamina that we can live with the injustice perpetrated against us. And Lord, give us love. Give us strength to do this because we love. And Lord, may many be saved. And may the Lord Jesus Christ receive glory. Amen.